scrolling for August 29th, 2023. I'm Steve Voter. I'm Chip Hessenplum. And I'm Pam Bedore. Hey, Pam is here. It's the end of the month, and Pam is joining us for our favorite segment, our book club. Our our book club is so special to me. I love having you here, Pam. I love being here, and what a fun book for this month. Boy. Film at 11. Brings us to our film at 11, our movie of the week. Chip, you got to the movie theater. You saw two movies in the movie theater this week. It's been a busy week for movies, Steve. So you got to see, <laughs> I'm, I, I'm, I'm going to say this out loud, on the air, you saw the movie Bottoms. Tell me all about this movie. <laughs> this is the year of the raunchy comedy, Steve. The mm-hmm. raunchy comedy. And I was at the Alamo Draft House. And uh, it was a full, full audience, full audience, a lot of laugh out loud comedy going on, certainly um, inappropriate comedy at times. This is about two um, young ladies who ultimately they start uh, a fight club in their uh, high school, Steve. And um, we didn't talk about fight club. We don't talk about fight club. It's their fight club, though, Steve. It's their fight club. Okay. They've got uh, Marshawn Lynch as the uh, student advisor for their uh, club, Steve. Oh, boy. And um, he is as inappropriate as he can be, but he's going through some things. He's going through some things. Oh. Um, so let's let's go. Is it as good as Booksmart? No, it isn't. Okay. Is it funny? Yes, it is funny in a very crude and fun way of old timey um movies uh when i say old timey you're gonna love this uh-huh. um this is gen z's version of uh of a teen movie okay so where we may look at somebody may say breakfast club is our, our version of a gen x uh teen movie this is more like heathers if you needed to have a way of putting it it is raunchy so, you know, if a kid had grown up watching High School Musical, Glee, um, Pitch Perfect, this is definitely that line of comedy, but just make it rated R, and uh, let's just go with that. Okay. I'm going to say 72 out of 100. It is one of the better films I've seen this summer, certainly one of the funnier ones. Uh, it's not for everybody, but then again, you know, if you're Gen Z and you're of an adult age, this is for you. Interesting. I, I am intrigued. I will probably not see this film, but I am intrigued and I'm glad that you found it to be. That's maybe your highest score for the whole year so far. I don't know if that is, mm. but that's one of the higher ones. Hmm. You also saw the Blue Beetle, which is which stands uh, in opposition to that score, huh? Yeah, so I did not see Blue Beetle opening weekend, but I wanted to catch it before it exits the theater Um, This is a superhero film. Blue Beetle um, from the 60s old time was redone by DC Comics, I don't know, 20 years ago or so, to make him a a young person uh, with Mexican-American roots. It was set up in El Paso. They've moved that to the fictional uh, town of Palmero City, which is sort of like a Miami type of situation so it's it's light it's fun it's kind of a a goofy they've got a really good cast here they just don't have great material to work with susan sarandon is our bad guy she's a head of a corporation who can do anything certainly struggling yeah where's the board of directors on these companies why can they have all these pet projects uh to do all these things but let's just say um, the, the the cast was very fun. Blue Beetle's kind of a Iron Man-ish type of superhero. Yeah. Um, it's a very corny, light superhero movie. Certainly maybe from a, an earlier time in the superhero trope. But it leans into the cultural piece of the Mexican-Americans. It does. I mean, but you can also tell the director really struggles to understand the United States. And that's too bad. He gets back from college. His major was pre-law, yet he has nothing that he's going to interview for hmm. or even think about it. So he ends up working, you know, folding towels, which is 
listen, kids graduate from school and while they're interviewing and stuff like that, go into everyday jobs. But that was, it just seemed like he had no future. Like he didn't really think about it other than going to college. Hmm. His daughter is too smart. And of course she's got to say, hey, listen, why am I going to college to get that debt? You know, so immediately that's um, her aim. And then um, the uncle who was weird, played by George Lopez, he's like this brilliant technology guy that can make anything. And it just, it doesn't make sense. Mm. He, 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 he just doesn't make sense. Anyway, let's say that your kids say, we're going to watch this movie or your grandkids. And you go, great, we'll watch it. 50 out of 100. It's very light. It's breezy. I think that mm, young people may enjoy it. Older people are going to go, I want a little more sophistication. Let's just go with that. So it was originally written as a streaming movie. Do you think that it will do better streaming? It would be better to watch it at home with the family than going to the theater for it? That makes a lot of sense if that was what the original purpose of it was. It is what it is. It's it's nothing that's special, but nothing that's bad. I mean, it's just kind of there. And the guy sitting near me that I had a conversation with, he was really into it. Huh. And And I'm in an empty theater. I've got, I don't know. I have 10 people in this theater. And he he goes, listen, that was one of the better movies. And I'm looking at it going, that movie was awful. Um, and I, I don't mean awful in, in the sense of like the room. Yeah. I mean, it just, it, there was, it's just so light and breezy and nothing juvenile. Mm-hmm. Um, and, as far as how it was written. Um, but then again, you never know who the target audience is. That's true. It sounds like it wasn't awful enough to be fun for Steve. Yeah, yeah, no, I would not. I would not put it into the category of a Steve movie for sure. So let's let's bring this to the real movie that I got to watch after I got to see these two movies, where I was going like, "This is a real film." Yes, we have brought to the table one of my favorite movies of all time on my top ten list of movies, Contact from 1997, based on the Carl Sagan book first published in 1985 this is a great film this is a real movie pam and chip and i all committed to watching this movie chip this was your was this your first time watching this no this was not my first time it's my first time since 1997 this is a Robert Zemeckis film, Chicago's South Side there, Steve. Chicago's very own Robert Zemeckis has got a new movie called Contact. It's from 1997. <laughs> <laughs> Pam, what is, what's your history with this movie? So I watched it in the theaters, totally loved it. Somehow, 25 years passed by, half a lifetime, and I hadn't rewatched it. And so when we talked about it last last time we spoke, I was so excited and it was even better than I remembered. Like I loved this movie and it's rare to have a movie you really like and you just kind of forgot about it and just didn't rewatch it. And so having that 25 year gap, I had forgotten the plot, mm. but I remembered the feeling yes. and the plot is awesome. Mm. I had forgotten how good the plot is. But, you know, all of the philosophical and really interesting sort of cultural theory that Carl Sagan throws at us is still, I would argue, just as relevant as it ever was. Now, Chip, you're the one who recommended we read A Demon Haunted World and and think through the movie again. I forgot. I used to teach A Demon Haunted World. As soon as I started reading it, I was like, Wait a minute. I know this really, really well. I used to teach chapter one in my thinking through science writing class. And so what a what a wonderful you guys. I always love talking to you guys, but just sort of reconnecting me with Carl Sagan, who I enjoyed so much in the 90s. Thanks. There's so much Carl Sagan in this movie. This is yeah. this is so much centered on the science that he was 
he was the biggest proponent of he was the face the the pop culture face of science for so long and this movie does that science so well because he was there he was putting this together unfortunately he passed away in the filming of this movie and so he didn't get to have his cameo that he was supposed to have at the end of the film but he is all over this movie and it is brilliant science this idea of bring uh science to the everyday person, this movie allowed that to happen. So you got to explore, you know, a made up story along with the scientific thoughts that would go along mm. if this really happened in, in a very grown up way, mm -hmm. but ready for the everyday person too. I want to make sure I'm clear. If you were a teenager and you wanted to become a scientist and you watch this, this certainly, in my opinion, would be very inspirational or could be. I, I believe all of that to be true. And I think that the focus on the human emotion in this story is that connection. There is great, hard, real science and this real emotional connection that we have with these characters. It, it helps to have Jodie Foster as Jody, your as your lead for sure. There's no <laughs> doubt that Jodie Foster had something special in this movie, along with Matthew McConaughey. I absolutely think this might be my favorite Matthew McConaughey film. He, all right, all right, all right. <laughs> he embodies the character of Palmer Joss so perfectly, and the connection that he and Jodie Foster, Ellie, have is so electric. I, I found it so beautiful to watch this again. I have watched this movie so many times in the last 25 years, Pam. I have purchased this movie on so many different formats in the last 25 years. 1997 was a big year for me. That was a year that my wife and I graduated from college, got married, went on a honeymoon for a month, moved house and started our careers. 1997 was a huge red letter year. And this movie, we went to the theater to see this was a big part of our relationship. It is one of the three great religion-based movies of 1997. Kundun came out in December of 1997 and Seven Years in Tibet came out in October of 1997. It was a big year for big philosophical films. Well, and I can tell you, Steve, I'm not going to go another 25 years without watching this. <laughs> so I, I I, will watch this again. So Jodie Foster and Matthew McConaughey, how young are they in this movie? Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Um, you know, having seen them in a million things since then, mm -hmm. it was just so interesting to see them as just, you're right, totally powerful, engaged charismatic actors really much much earlier in their careers who've who've done amazing work since then i would also say chip going back to this idea of the film as inspiring for young people it's both inspiring and infuriating and i think that sagan really captures so accurately the feeling that women in stem science technology engineering and math fields so often experience perhaps in other parts of the university as well. But this notion of Jodie Foster, smartest person in the room, totally has this idea, fights for it, pushes for it, and then just gets sort of swept away by this older male scientist who had been so abusive to her when she was younger. That is not an unusual story within the academy and within the world of STEM. And it's captured so nicely by a middle-aged, middle-class white guy. It's impressive. It's impressive cultural analysis and really clearly developed. And uh, and of course, because it's fiction, you get to have uh, you get to have a little bit of a twist in how it all works out. And Tom Skerritt. It does does oh, that so part so well. Mm -hmm. It is so believable, and it is so obvious what was happening that she is being pushed aside, it physically, emotionally, clearly denoted in this film. Well done. Well, this was a really fun film to watch after watching Oppenheimer, because Oppenheimer dealt with something that was, you know, what I would say, similar. Mm -hmm. They put together this team, they're trying to do this, and all the nuances that are going on around that, too. So these films actually, when I say dovetail, they're different mm -hmm. on what they're, how they're addressing things, but they're addressing 
very smart people doing very smart things, and then the politics that are around him. The opening scene of this movie is so memorable. The use of silence and then absolute noise and then leading us to the idea that our radio signals are leaving our planet and going out into the vastness of space i I think about that opening sequence all the time and the fact that it concludes in a young girl's eye is is right there on that message about what we humans can do and what we are capable of i I wonder if that was inspired a little bit i can't at the beginning of 2001, when you're going through space and there's just void of, of sound, too. I'm sure it is. Yeah, I think there's a lot of homage to 2001 um, in terms of how it's shot. I, I, I thought of 2001 many times. I also feel like that initial moment, it really helps you as a reader to sort of position yourself as an optimist or a pessimist, because this question is it a good idea to send out signals <laughs> to potential extraterrestrials? I mean, your answer to that, I think, is it It can be based in your scientific or pseudoscientific approach on the world, but I think it all comes down to optimism or pessimism. Do you think someone would hear that message and think, awesome, let's meet the newest member of the Federation? Or do you think someone hears that message and thinks, food? Invade. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Well, right. to go even further on that, what was the first message that was sent out? And there's the there's the shocking moment of that mm-hmm. is that you're like, oh, they got one of our messages. Mm-hmm. And who was that person that gets shot out into space as that first as our ambassador? One of the first okay. broadcasts, one of the first huge broadcasts that goes out into space, the 1939 Olympics and Adolf Hitler opening those games. And that is the message that was received and bounced back 26 years out and 26 years back. Uh, brilliant, brilliant use of shock in, th- in that you don't expect that. Well, and that also comes back to this idea of like, who is a representative of humanity, right? So this is that sort of accidental, like this was one of our first broadcasts. So the representative was Hitler. And then now the question is, we have a chance to choose our representative. Who should that representative be? What features or qualities do we want them to display that would represent our species? Mm -hmm. And, you know, just the difficulty or probably impossibility of answering that question just speaks to our own human diversity. Mm-hmm. And, and is even Jodie Foster, Foster available? <laughs> I think she's still available. Uh, she is on strike with the SAG act, SAG strike, but, but after that, she certainly could be one of the best representatives of earth for sure. Because right. what do you do? I'm an actor. And um, I'm representing. I pretend to be other people. (laughs) (laughs) It's like kind of on brand for humans. Your history, your history. (laughs) The sound design is so great on this film. It was nominated for an Oscar. It lost to a a movie that you might have heard of called Titanic in 1997. So yeah, it it, it was kind of a an uphill battle. But the sound design is so perfect. The Alan Silvestri music is is memorable mixed with all the pop music of the time and giving us that message about broadcast that message about sound and how we humans are part of our galaxy and galaxies beyond i I love this well well, after seeing a bunch of robert zemeckis films i there was something very familiar with the music Mm -hmm. For sure. And the camera moves. This is a Robert Zemeckis film for sure. You can see all of the Robert Zemeckis films have a pattern and this is using that to its best advantage. And I love the use of the ham radio kind of, kind of playing around and how it becomes kind of an obsession Mm -hmm. for, because I was thinking of all those DJs, all those people who just got started because they started playing around with a piece of te- technology. All the people who got involved in computers because they got they started playing around with a piece of technology. All the people who who work on race cars and design race cars because they were tinkering around with a piece of technology. This idea that something you do 
something grabs you and it just becomes a passion and it drives you through life. It becomes a love of of life. Welcome to the 10th year of Too Much Scrolling, our podcast where we sit around and talk about things that we love. <laughs> well, and I think that this desire for communication is really central as well. And I think it was, I mean, obviously Sagan had a lifelong interest in the connections between science, pseudoscience, and religion, and kind of the spaces that each of those three epistemological frames or ways of knowing occupy in our world. And I think that, you know, it's very profound that Ellie loses both of her parents at a very young age, and that she asks, how could we talk to mom? She asks her dad, and then she just asks herself, like after her dad dies when she's nine or 10, what are the ways of communicating across spaces we don't even understand and can't even name? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the, the, the very science-based communication with extraterrestrials in the SETI project is very linked philosophically with other notions of communication that's, that makes this such a rich tapestry of ways of knowing. Did you ever do any work with the SETI project, Pam? Oh, you mean like on my own computer? I didn't. I know people who did, though. I always thought I would, and then I just kind of passed me by. I bet you did, of Steve. Of course I did. Of course you did. Of course I did. <laughs> I spent a, I spent some electrons trying, seeking, trying to find. It seems inevitable that there is somewhere in the universe another world that has some other creatures on it and it seems inevitable that they would get to a technological lifestyle like ours and maybe even beyond ours the premise of this movie is that fermi paradox why why can we have this huge universe how is it possible that there's nobody else out there. We are seeking that connection in so many different ways. That's my absolute favorite quote of this film. Do you think there's people on other planets? I don't know, Sparks, but I guess I'd say if it's just us, it seems like an awful waste of space. It, it just it's welcome to coast to coast i'm art bell come on let's talk please please smoking i i loved art bell i loved art bell's enthusiasm to try to find an answer to this broad question i went to roswell new mexico i, I drove by roswell new mexico did i stop in roswell new mexico heck yeah i stopped in roswell new mexico is it you know fiction is it truth is it science is it pseudoscience i love the emotional human ideal of finding another world well and of course the fermi paradox is specifically the idea that one reason we may not have found another world is because we're at the place in our technology where civilizations destroy themselves mm -hmm. and i absolutely loved and would expect nothing less from sagan then the what then when uh, Ellie gets asked if you could only ask the aliens one question what would it be and she asks how do you get through this teenage phase of technology development without destroying yourself utterly perfect i i that's the question i think question. you can't think of a better question than that no, no. I I have questions about time because time is a thing that I think about all of the time. But <laughs> but yeah, that that is the utterly perfect question that Carl Sagan poses to us in 1997. And immediately she she is dismissed as our lead on the first mission because of religion and how that you know yeah. this idea that somehow that is the Big question to ask something that potentially is not adding to a religious moment, mm -hmm. but certainly fascinating, fascinating that that even today. So, you know, that would probably be a deciding factor for someone. The, the division that is faith, the division that is religion, the, this on, on the, on the week that India Land lands on lands on the moon mm -hmm. where many of their people have a different faith mm -hmm. you know watching this movie recognizing that somehow western faith is going to be the deciding factor mm -hmm. 
yeah there's a there's an indian space program in doctor who that's very 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 successful by the way that's all i was thinking when the indians landed on the moon this week religion becomes such a big part of this story and and back to that notion of we need to find the perfect representative of earth is religion a part of that this has gone through so well in this narrative the the quote our job was to select someone to speak for everybody and i just couldn't in good conscience vote for a person who doesn't believe in god someone who honestly thinks the other 95 percent of us suffer from some form of mass delusion this is an idea that we're going to get to in the carl sagan book in a minute when we get to the book it segment but it's right there if this is a mass delusion, if we are all incorrect and only 5% of the world is right, how can that be? Well, it was so funny. I was watching this film with my husband and when that came up, we paused it and we were like, whoa, mm -hmm. a lot of things in this film still hold really, really true. But that 95% number struck us as very unlikely in 2023. It has changed. And so I looked at a couple of different sources and in the US, it's about 81% now down from high 90s in before the turn of the century. And uh, one of the numbers I saw in the world is 63% consider themselves religious but only about 11% of people are actually atheists. So down kind of from 95 to 90 to 90, as far as I can tell. So that's a, that's been a huge shift in the past 25 years is a move away from religion. But Churches I are dying, but the, but the, but the people who are of faith are becoming more, more vocal, vocal. kind of entrenching. Yes. And also I'm not sure like, Sagan, I mean, I think Sagan really sets up nicely that we have science versus religion, but we also have pseudoscience. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so it's not, it's not like people can't have both science and religion. Um, but a lot of, you know, with this, I would, I would argue that although religion has lessened a little bit, science has not necessarily risen mm -hmm. in, um, to the same degree. Wow. The, the in fact the book we're going to we're going to talk about that because it, that is you know the question is what do humans need? Hmm. And and connection is a big part of the story of contact and I I love I I wrote down so many quotes. I I have watched this movie so many times. This is a big part of who I am, but one of the quotes, the alien species says to Ellie, you're an interesting species, an interesting mix. You're capable of such beautiful dreams and such horrible nightmares. You feel so lost, so cut off, so alone. Only you are not see in all of our searching. The only thing we found that makes the emptiness bearable is each other. That is one of the big, huge themes of this storytelling. So, Steve, I'm in a church, and I'm sitting down to tell my little story, and I give this quote that God said to you. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's the big, the, the, the twist is that the religious talk ends up becoming the conversations. In fact, even the last scene becomes... What what is she doing? She's using religious talk to to try to make the argument of what she experienced. Mm -hmm. That that human fascination with trying to explain the inexplicable. How can we talk about these things? What are these things? What are truths? How do we know what we know? All of that is is so well represented in this film. Let's start at the hookah bar. Let's go. But there's also the question of faith, right? And so here Ellie is someone who takes everything on scientific principle and doesn't pay too much attention to people who say, well, but I had this experience and I have faith in that experience. And then she is left having had this experience of which she has nope. almost no evidence. Mm -hmm. And the evidence, the small bit of evidence she may have is suppressed. And so here she is placed in the position of a religious prophet who says, but, but you have to believe me, I experienced this. And so she, a scientist is pushed to think what it might feel like 
to be a person of of religion. Mm-hmm. And of course, she's protected by the person of religion. Mm-hmm. I, and I, are they driving a Lincoln, Steve? All right, all right, all right. Again, Matthew McConaughey, I love Matthew McConaughey in everything, but this might be the Matthew McConaughey film for me. Agree. I agree, too. Anything else about this movie before we get into the the rest of the story with Carl Sagan? We'll never get through if we go any further into the movie. Let's go to the book. I'll I'll say 88 out of 100. There we go. I should probably give it a... Wow. Very good. Wait till you see this sucker do 90. <laughs> That's Back to the Future. That's a different Robert Zemeckis film. Book it, book it, book it. Book it, book it, book it. Book it. Book it. Brings us to our book and our book of the week. We have gathered together our book club to discuss Carl Sagan's The Demon Haunted World Science as a Candle in the Dark. This was published in 1995. We brought up the movie Contact, which was put out in 1997. This is right on the heels of this writing from Carl Sagan. So I've got a question. Was this originally, this book, a compilation of just journal articles or something? Yes, it was. And certainly one of the essays from this, I mean, it, it, it is a cohesive piece, but it's a, it's a collection of essays that he published over the years. And one of the essays that I personally find most powerful is the very opening chapter, The Most Precious Thing, in which he argues that science is a way of seeing, a way of knowing that gives you all of these insights that you can that you cannot have in any other way. And this is, um, I actually haven't taught a thinking through science class in a while, but I think I would still use this essay today. I'm not sure I've read anything in the last couple of decades that I think is better positioned to make an emotional appeal for the beauty of science as a way of knowing. I think Carl Sagan was super special in that ability to make that connection. We have some great pop scientists today and, and they have their voice, but I think that the emotional drive that Carl Sagan brought is different from anybody else. And we often evaluate essays on ethos, pathos, and logos. And so logos, logic, hundred percent there. He's got all the pieces ethos actually being able to have the credibility. Sagan absolutely has that credibility still today. And in terms of pathos, the emotional appeal he makes of what you can get as a young scientist is still totally powerful. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing how much power this book from you know, 28, from 28 years ago still has so much impact on what we're thinking and doing today. Well, I, in fact, I, as I was reading it, I kept getting deeper and deeper and deeper into it. It kept leading me in, in as a good book would be into good questions and to thinking, well, thinking strongly about ideas. And I, I just want to start off by just mentioning that Carl admits that he had this has this interest in science, but he goes, yeah, I wasn't very good at this, and um, I didn't really have great teachers in this. He just kept kind of plugging along to get to where his passion was, which ultimately he, he achieved. But it was because of his drive, because he just had interest in it. And and I think one of the things you just said that's so important is that Sagan tells you, hey, I had lots of weaknesses. And then he connects that to science. And I want to read a quote that I always use with students. Science thrives on errors, cutting them away one by one. False conclusions are drawn all the time, but they are drawn tentatively. Hypotheses are framed so they are capable of being disproved. A succession of alternative hypotheses is confronted by experiment and observation. Science gropes and staggers toward improved understanding. And I love all the images in that, this notion that like science is about making mistakes. It's about making mistakes, naming them mistakes, making another hypothesis. And so it's not about knowing something for sure. It's about moving towards groping and staggering 
towards knowledge. It's a, it's a really wonderful image to me. It's beautiful. That is a beautiful way to think about scientific exploration and scientific method and finding the truth, even in the face of errors. And, and doesn't that explain when you talk to the layman, the everyday person about subjects and they have such certainty mm -hmm. when they're talking about it, you recognize the learned person is much, you know, just maybe steps back and immediately thinks of possibilities. Certainly is much more generous with their lack of knowledge than a person who doesn't have that knowledge has. And it just, we live in a world where you're driven by people who just feel they have more certainty than they may, they may have. And they don't know what they don't know. I, I as an educator, I my job is to stamp out ignorance and showing students what they don't know and, and having that moment where they go, I did not know that. I, I've changed my way of thinking based on that piece of evidence. That's this whole book for me. I see that human knowledge is limited, limited by time, limited by space. The unknown is so frightening, but also so fascinating. And we need to guard against false narratives, but at the same time, we need to be suspicious of our own ignorance that I kept thinking of that as he's giving us these different scenarios where our ignorance is the problem. And I think that one thing that Sagan does so well is he, he is such an optimist about what we don't know. And I think that's partly what I really love about him. Reminds me of Asimov in a lot of ways. So understanding like, hey, the more you get to know, the more you realize how little you know. So as you move through your life, like at age 50, there's so much more I don't know than at age 20, right? And I have a lot of optimism that what I don't know could be really, really helpful and useful to the future, you know? And uh, and so not being afraid of what we don't know, being excited, that's the thats the point. Isn't that, isn't that interesting? I, I am sometimes terrified by what I don't know. And, and those moments where we as a society are scared of something that we don't understand and you are fascinated and want to find out more, and, and I am too, and... There's a line there, and and Sagan is able to put that together in this work in this writing. I, I'm going to also add to this by by mentioning that even though you don't know everything, and you recognize there's so much you don't know, you know it's also a fallacy to not use your expertise. Like if Sagan wanted to sit down and talk to us about I don't know astrophysics or something. Uh, cosmos or something he's got a knowledge base that i don't have mm -hmm. but he should not feel like that um he doesn't have a, a a grasp of it to to talk to a person like me this is not my 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 knowledge base and we we have you know this this imposter syndrome at times with our own knowledge and to recognize you know, you're standing in a situation in a conversation or why you're brought in for your expertise or whatever, you know, feel comfortable to use it, even recognizing the limitations of it. Neil deGrasse Tyson is probably the Carl Sagan of our current time. And his book, Astrophysics for People in a Hurry, really tries to be Carl Sagan, tries to give us the science in a way that we can process. And, and he's, he just, he's not that same character as Carl Sagan was. Well, he also gets involved in a lot of other conversations where he probably shouldn't. Well. That's he that's his right as an American for sure. But the pop science part is is something that I admire with him. I agree. I will absolutely agree. I've seen him speak. Nice. So guys, I'm actually curious, 25, 27 years after this book was written, um, how relevant does it feel to our world today? It's it's modern. This is a modern piece. Uh -huh. I, I did not feel it was dated. I mean, maybe there were some areas in between that, you know, could have been more modern, but I didn't read it that way. I was reading it as 
if he wrote the words yesterday and he printed it and we were we were consuming it today it was very relevant it kept, i kept thinking of things that we're dealing with today that he was certainly talking about in yesterday's language not even language it's it's it reads as a modern piece we're so enthralled by conspiracies in 2023 we are so inundated with who is uh who is guilty of breaking rico rules and who has put together certain uh conspiracies to do certain things and the truth is out there sorry that's the x <laughs> and and how can we find that truth this is very relevant intellectually we know we all live in a subjective world i mean how we re- review our lives our surroundings our circumstances whatever that is there's some subjective ways of looking at that and the idea that there may be some objective truths out there is i mean certainly addressed in in here i mean how science could work what we know about it how we interpret ourselves into it i mean certainly man it's just it's a modern modern piece so i was really fascinated as i was rereading this 25 years after i first read and and taught the book that so many of the conspiracies that he tries to debunk are still very much with us today they're very very familiar and certainly he starts with ufos he goes through atlantis he goes through a number of different things But one thing I noticed that really has changed in 25 years is the tone that he uses. And I have taken some time this week thinking about this because he's very sarcastic in the book. There are many places where he's like, well, some people might think this, but don't you think it's right? Don't you think it's much? There's a little like, I don't want to say mansplaining, but there's a little bit of, um, of a superiority to the tone Agreed. that I don't at all associate with Sagan. And I really realized like, man, that's how everybody talked in the nineties. And part of the issue I think with today, like as I thought this through over the week, and let me ask if you guys agree, I think there might be even more people who believe in conspiracy theories today than in the nineties. I don't know the numbers on that, but I think we have a certain gentleness in, certainly in education in approaching people whose theories we might have called crackpot theories in the past, now we would say, now that's an interesting way of looking at that. Um, Let's think it through. Let's talk through how we might think about your notion of UFOs. We wouldn't be so aggressive. And I actually think that that's a change in how we're talking about pseudoscience rather than saying that like Sagan was a bit rude because I don't think he was for the time, but there were some places where it felt a little rude by today's standards. He didn't have social media. Like we had social media. Exactly. Right. Where, where people yes. can choose to pull Well, the beauty of being able to have access to a lot of stuff means you've got access to a lot of poorly thought things. I don't think Sagan would ideally or, or any person who is of that type of um, learned uh, authority. I don't know how we want to describe it, because you can think of any type of science or any type of thoughts on it. Um, That would be prepared for the character assassination of a Twitter feed, um, of just being having something that is irrelevant to the argument brought in to discredit you. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Sagan had a bad meal at some restaurant. It was caught on tape. Now Sagan, we can't believe Sagan at all. And all of a sudden you're like, wow, that is something that, that just gets thrown in somewhere. It's almost, um, and then having, well, I'm sorry, I'm going to go on to this, having to defend arguments that have been debunked a long time ago. They're like, well, you know, when the aliens landed in Roswell, like, whoa, whoa, whoa. What do you mean? We don't have proof for that. Right. Well, you know, I've got all these sources. Mm-hmm. I did my own. And first-hand accounts, antidotes, mm-hmm. uh, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. John said he was there. I love that point, Chip. That's really helpful. I think that's part of what I was thinking about is that it feels a little bit like he's punching down in a few places, mm-hmm. except that 
he's not punching down at social media feeds from whoever. He's talking about published books, right, that have gone through um, a, a certain process, whatever that was. And you're right. He's he really like the, the Roswell stuff is awesome. I found it so fascinating that people, you know, put out all these FOIA requests to get information about what we used to call UFOs, what we now call UAPs, Unidentified Anomalous Phenomena. So he explains that people make these FOIA requests asking for information. And typically, the unexplained phenomena is some sort of military thing. So when you get your FOIA request, it's mostly redacted. And so what are you supposed to think as a citizen? Mm-hmm. Like, okay, maybe it's a military secret, or maybe there's a massive cover-up. Maybe there's a suspicion of authority there. Uh-huh. And, and, and it's healthy to be suspicious of leadership, but when you can't get consensus on things, it creates all sorts of challenges. Mm-hmm. It's almost like you're living in multiple worlds. At the same time. And and social media certainly amplifies that feeling. And that's something that we did not have in 1995. The World Wide Web was just in its infancy at the beginning of, of this conversation. And yes, that has amplified and changed those feelings. I liked where his arguments eventually led, where, you know, I'm wondering if there are some... In, he talks about the decline of religion, the the uh, ghosts and, and aliens and fairies and all these other things that over history have been used to describe unknown happenings. Whether humans, just by being human, the, the mind requires this. The narrative. Does, d- does it require the religious narrative? Does it require, if that wasn't it, those fairies? That, that it was ghosts that did this, whether it was aliens that did it. And then, you know, eventually he kind of moves into therapy. And I think he was as deeply critical of this helpful, this potentially helpful um, situation to the suggestion that that the therapist is not there to help you experience whatever that thing you're trying to work out, which I thought was brilliantly eye-opening, just as a thought process. As an English major, yes, we need narrative. That's how we think. That's the answer to that question. What do you think, Pam? Well, so as a utopian studies person, it's right at the center of utopian studies. There's a paradox, right? That you wouldn't even know you were happy if you didn't know what it meant to be sad. Mm. And so in a way, like the way that we understand the beauty of science as an epistemological frame or a way of knowing the world is by understanding pseudoscience or or knowing that there are other ways out there. If we were all just scientists by nature and that was the end of it, we wouldn't even understand how precious it was to have this way of thinking. And I think that's really central to, to his whole argument. And I think that scientific method applied to the impossible to debunk is fine. But what about the truly invisible elements of our reality? What about germs and bacteria and DNA? Those things that science can explain, but before their discovery, they were mystical, magical. I don't know. Maybe it's witches. Well, I I wanted to quote a doctor from 125 years ago who says they don't exist. Remember the, the moment in 12 Monkeys where, where the Brad Pitt character explains about the discovery of bacteria and germs and, and how how pseudoscience that sounded at the time. Oh, yeah, yeah, these invisible things. That's what's killing you. Yeah, yeah, sure. I didn't go to 12 Monkeys, but I was thinking of Arthur C. Clarke and that notion that any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. And I think that's part of part of the narrative that that Sagan is is describing as well. And that well, quote is a big part of my curriculum in technology. That's what I thought. Yes, that, is, <laughs> that is my technology curriculum. If you don't understand how it works, then it's just magic. Let's explain how it works now. Right. Let me show you how my iPhone works, but there's no cell towers here. So- <laughs> <laughs> now, um, one of the things that, so as I was really reading this 25 years later and thinking, like, how does it describe our current world? I did note, I paused at a couple of predictions 
that he made. And I really wanted to think about the smoking prediction. So he talks at length and very persuasively about the rhetoric around smoking and the way the big tobacco companies have suppressed a lot of really compelling data. And um, and so he does this. I, very- I'm in North Carolina. It's a vegetable, Pam. <laughs> exactly, I knew exactly. that was coming. <laughs> it's a vegetable. And um, I'm not sure if there's anything conclusive we can learn from it. I'm a fan of the Flintstones and Fred Flintstone said smoking was fine. <laughs> well, thank you for supporting Sagan's <laughs> on this. Now, what I wanted to say, though, is that he notes that given he does this, this uh, regression analysis, and he notes that by 2020, he predicts um, about 10 million people will die from smoking related illnesses. Now, that was that's so fun, right? Because we can actually go and find out how many people did die from smoking related illnesses in 2020. Um, did you guys look at my notes or, or do you want to make a guess? Was he I, over I, or I, under? I read your notes. I Jim? didn't read the notes. Over so, or uh, under? 10 million. What do you think? I don't know. Um, I, there's more people. All right. I'll say, I'll say I'll, he's on target. He was close, but he was actually a decent amount over. It was 7.1 million. And I actually know, like, and this is something that I've talked about to friends. I live in a different part of the country than you do, Chip. I also go to a different country quite often. I've talked to friends about this. Like, our kids have never seen someone smoke. Hmm. Like, you know, and so our kids know about smoking Mm -hmm. and they've seen people vaping, right? But our kids have not seen a person with a cigarette in their mouth. Very, very seldom, if, if ever. And so things have changed drastically. Like we do have way better narratives around smoking. I don't think Sagan realized like, you know, certainly in Canada, right around the turn of the century, when you bought a package of cigarettes, there was like a picture of a blackened lung on the packet, every packet. And, you know, the that advertising has really made a difference. And the court cases that that made those things happen were right around this time, 1995. Well, on the grand part of this, though, is that they are vaping, mm-hmm. and there are young people who have picked up smoking, like mm-hmm. you're with college age people. Now, it's it's really interesting. Who was that person that goes, "Yeah, I should try this," but they're still. If you go to the corner store, they're still selling them. Mm-hmm. They they are now. There's fewer brands. Like Marble has like fifty different brands now. It's not you know a hundred different ones. It's certainly very interesting. I, I still, I, I, I don't understand why a person would choose smoking. But the, I, I grew up around real fast. I grew up around people who smoked, mm-hmm. but no, very few so people. Did, right, and so did I. But I actually, I was thinking about this. It was so funny. I was having this conversation with a friend, and it wasn't me who brought it up. But I was having the conversation yesterday. I personally don't have any friends who smoke. I know a couple of colleagues who smoke. But but they're not people I know well at all. Whereas when I was growing up, I knew like half of the people I knew were smokers, right? And so so it is, I think it's fascinating. And I think Sagan would be delighted to be proved wrong on this point, Agreed. like by a third. And I think this is, and he's part of it. Mm-hmm. His making those arguments, popularizing those arguments, showing people how to do that sort of analysis is part of why we've had some success in the area of smoking. Smoking is not as as popular as it used to be. (laughs) This is Lucille Ball. Let me explain. All right, so I'm going to throw something else out there. I don't know, you you guys probably know this, but around the time, maybe this time, R.J. Reynolds, Camels, Salem's, Winston's, bought Nabisco, and um, Philip Morris, who has a different name now, with Marlboro, Benson Hedges, uh, Virginia Slims, things like that. They ended up buying Kraft. So but anyway, the, many of those same arguments they were using were moved to food. Hmm. And guess what? You can't put food behind a counter. Hmm. So think about what the human body is doing now. And hmm. just, I don't know. Let your imagination work a little bit. I don't know. Conspiracy chip for the win. Thank you very much. That's <laughs> right. I'm throwing that out there. <laughs> You're following me for my ghost hunting. <laughs> what else do we need to cover? 
That's all for me. What do you guys have? Let's go back to the therapy thing real quick, because that just blew me away that that when people are going through challenges, one of the things he was suggesting is that the therapists were leading them mm-hmm. and not necessarily helping them. Because you would think that, hey, I'm having difficulty dealing with whatever you're dealing with, um, that the therapist would say, well, here's some ways of questioning yourself, or these are some things you're doing. But what he was finding is that many people were just kind of like, well, let's just go with it. Um, yeah, you, you are abducted with aliens. Unconsciously going with it. Not not specifically choosing to follow that false story, but that story was so intriguing that the, the people that he's talking about, their minds said, yeah, that must be true. Yeah, and so what my, my initial thought on that is – boy, we have to be really careful when we're working with friends or whatever like that, that if they are going through, I mean, it's not, you can't, listen, in polite society, you can't, well, I'm sorry, on online, you can, you can just call people out, just scream at them and yell and get them down. But in polite society, we shouldn't be (laughs) letting people go down these rabbit holes of false information. Mm -hmm. Imagine I mean, what that does to your your view of reality. We can and, see it all on that social media, can't we? In addition to that, what that has led to as far as drug abuse, how, how what percentage of our society is on some kind of medication that alters their reality, hmm. makes it, numbs it, whatever you want to say. Boy, we've got so much work to do to try to work with humans to kind of, um, I don't know, naturally relax them, put them in, you know, is the type of work or how we address work, is that part of what's really causing these anxieties, these challenges? Boy, I mean, I just, as I'm reading, your mind just starts spinning on so many things. How are we dealing with young people? Mm-hmm. Is this really the proper way of working with them? How are we dealing with humans that start going on, you know, down rabbit holes? Mm-hmm. Wow. I mean, it just, there's, there's the entire time I I was reading this book, it just kept begging me to think deeper and deeper and deeper about many of the uh, society, I mean, society's challenges. And um, I would highly recommend if a person has interest in reading this book to do so, because you, you will find what, what I think all three of us found. Can I throw Optimist Pam at you, Chip? Here there we go. go. Here we go. Here we go. Everybody <laughs> smile. Everybody smile. All a right. Canadian has something to say. She's got some soma, Steve. No, but here's the thing, because the, the piece about the therapists who led people down rabbit holes and who became known as like therapists who are really good if you've been abducted by aliens who support those narratives. I think, once again, much like the smoking example, that Sagan bringing that into the light and sort of discussing that has has really helped departments of psychology, now called in a lot of places, certainly at UConn Psychological Sciences, um, has really helped people to have you know, better strategies for teaching therapists, right? For for teaching psychologists and psychiatrists of of the future, um, how to how to really speak back to those conspiracy narratives. And so, once again, I would say it was super fascinating to read. But therapy has changed a lot in twenty five years, and I think really changed for the better. And how amazing that Carl Sagan of all people is the guy that made a change in not a scientific field like psychology and in a humanities sort of field like that. But I think a lot of our best scientists do recognize that stories, right? Mm -hmm. Stories are the way you get stuff done Mm -hmm. and stories are the way you lead to good policies as well as lead to people's understanding of some of the coolest things out there. So that brings me to my final question about this book. Which would you prefer the story of contact or this nonfiction creation, the demon haunted world, which one gave you the most, I don't know, knowledge here, Pam. Can I teach the movie along with the first chapter? 
and and that's why we talked about both, right? That's exactly why we talked about both because yeah. Carl Sagan was able to do similar things in both formats. How about you, Chip? Book. Really? Mm -hmm. Wow. Chip's that's a nonfiction guy, Steve. You know he it. Is, he is. He's our nonfiction guy. And that's why we work so well together. I am a fiction, a science fiction guy. And Chip, you are a hard science, truth is truth guy. And I, I love that about you. And I want to do both. And and the optimist is always going to find the positivity. <laughs> Pam, thank you so much for, for coming in for our, our book club and, and talking about a movie and a book, a book and a movie. It could be a potential podcast, a book and a movie every week. <laughs> I love it. And you guys, um, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You guys know how much I always love talking to you. I wrote the acknowledgments to my Canadian crime fiction book, which I just submitted to publisher. You guys are in it. Um, <laughs> but, but this time, even like every time I say this, but this time more than ever, I so appreciate you bringing me back to this movie and, and this book that I used to teach and, and should very well teach again. That's awesome. Thank you. That's The Demon Haunted World Science as a Candle in the Dark, published in 1995 by Carl Sagan. Scroll with it. Brings us to our scroll with it. There's plenty of things happening in the world. Let's talk about almost none of them. Uh, important military, important military update. Uh, Captain Crunch is finally uniform compliant, Chip. Isn't that amazing? After 60 years, he's been running around and no one has said anything to him, Steve. He finally has his four stripes. It's four stripes are finally a part of the captain. By the way, he's not a captain. He's a captain. The, the C-A-P apostrophe N. He's not a captain, but now he has a captain's uniform 60 years into that brand. Steve, will young kids ever know the thrill of having their top of their uh, mouth ripped apart by Captain Crunch cereal? <laughs> we discuss it in class all the time. Yes, the children today know about Captain Crunch. Hey, Steve, you know those big cheese heads up in North uh, Wisconsin there? Yes, I know many of them. They come down sometimes and talk to me. Oh, you mean the actual cheese hats. Gotcha. There was a company out there that uh, made those triangles of cheese that, that the Packers fan wear during their game, Steve. Yeah, well, anyway, that's religion. Uh, that's religion. Those are holy. It could be holy. <laughs> a little Swiss right there, a little Swiss humor um, in the German area. Anyway, the Packers seem to have bought that. So now they own their ability to make those. How about that? Oh, thank goodness. Thank goodness that's finally come to be a part of the Packers organization. The symbol that has been symbolic of the Packers for so long. Now they have control over their own cheese. And I don't know if you saw this, Steve, but did you see the LED basketball courts that they unveiled this summer for one of the tournaments over in Europe? No, I, I I can imagine LED has changed a lot of science, a lot of the ways that we do presentations. So if you can imagine a screen the size of a basketball court, you're playing on it. Wow. They're, they're, as you're moving around the court, they're putting circles underneath you, any number of things. It just seems so wild. Futuristic. That's right. The future is here. ASB has introduced a glass floor. And I, it's going to be interesting to see how quickly it gets adopted in the NBA and maybe even some of the, the college uh, teams coming. Um, but anyway, LEDs are becoming less inexpensive enough that we can do certainly magical things. Mm -hmm. that, that line between technology and magic, there it is right there. Speaking of pseudoscience, there's a new movie coming out this week. You can join us for the premiere of Simon Pegg's latest film. It's called Nandor Fodor and the Talking Mongoose. Yes, my name is finally famous enough to be put into a film starring Simon Pegg, Minnie Driver, Christopher Lloyd, and Neil Gaiman as the voice of the talking mongoose, Jeff. My favorite is in 1935, an Hungarian-American 
<laughs> so to say that I'm excited about this film is an understatement. To say that uh, many people on social media have alerted me, hey, did you know that this guy has your name? Are you related to Nandor Fodor and the Talking Mongoose? And I, I'm very excited to be a part of this film. Uh, I am an investor in this film, and I look forward to showing this film to you. It's coming to theaters September 1st. Check your local listings for locations and showtimes. Uh, I'm going to be at the Classic Cinemas in St. Charles on Friday, September 1st, and I'm going to have a little bit of a premiere party, and I, I want everybody to come out to the Classic Cinemas in St. Charles. Uh, join us the flagship on the Fox across the street, uh, 5 o'clock on Friday, September 1st. We'll we'll grab some some uh, treats and then with, go with, off. With, without garlic, Steve. No garlic. There's no garlic. This is a Hungarian uh, American film. We we don't eat garlic. I don't say blah blah blah. <laughs> Nandor Fodor and the Talking Mongoose, Simon Pegg, Mini Driver, Christopher Lloyd, Neil Gaiman, and Steve Fodor. We will see you there. I'm so excited about this. I don't know, Chip. I think we have enough information to survive another week. What do you think? Only if we can come back next week, Steve. What do you think, Pam? So much fun as always. I really wish I could be at this event. Oh, that would be amazing. I'll fly you out and watch this really <laughs> small artsy film. That would be so fun. <laughs> <laughs> next time next time we'll put you on the list we would love to hear from you give us a call or a text our phone number is 805-4104-TMS our website is too much scrolling.com our email is too much scrolling at gmail.com we're on threads and x.com and instagram and facebook we're on spotify and apple podcasts and youtube and you can always ask your smart speaker to play the latest episode of too much scrolling i want to thank you again for listening to too much scrolling i'm steve foder i'm chip hasenflo and i'm pam Vidor. We'll see you in the future. <laughs>